With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Mets fans, and welcome to this week's edition of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, the home of the 2015 NLE's champions, Amazing Avenue. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro, and with me this week to celebrate in a celebratory, revelatory mood on Amazing Avenue Audio is Steve Sippa. Steve! In September of 2007, Willie Randolph had this to say about his team's poor performance. I've been there many times, and this all feels very normal to me. Very much like what a pennant race should be. My players are feeling it too, and this will be a good experience for them. When we sip a little champagne later on, it'll be a little sweeter. Steve Sippa, eight years on, how did the champagne taste to you? I taste really good because it's chilled in the frozen tears of Bryce Harper. <laughs> so actually, Saturday I went into the city to watch Sheffield Wednesday against Brentford. Watch Wednesday uh, win on a 90th minute goal from Portuguese wonderkind Lucas Zhao. Didn't drink much. Needed to hustle back into Connecticut to watch the game here because I knew if I stayed in the city at Foley's or something it would just be an utter shit show <laughs> driving back stopped at the liquor store I'm like you know I don't even like champagne I'm not a big champagne guy I don't mind sparkling wine but something about the either the sweet stuff or the dry stuff doesn't do it for me and they had Prosecco there too I'm like oh I can just get Prosecco I'm an Italian I like Prosecco but then I realized no I gotta do it for Willie I gotta get some <laughs> champagne I gotta put it on ice because Willie was right, it did taste a little bit sweeter. It's actually a very dry Hudson Valley champagne that I don't like. So I'm just making French 75s with it all week. 
all week. It's Monday. I've had like four French 75, so get a bottle out of my house. It gets the job done. It does. It did. It was, it was, it was nice. It's nice. It's nice. There's no other way to say it. You know, it's been nine years since he was in the playoffs, nine years since they won the NL East. It's just, you know, it's, I don't, there's no words. When you kind of like, I, I watched, I just sat there watching like an hour of the post-game celebration on Saturday as my wife got more and more annoyed that we were just watching people spray <laughs> champagne on each other and that nothing else was really happening. But just all of it, it's like you just want to take it in because it happens so infrequently, even for good teams or teams that are even historically better than the Mets. It doesn't happen that often. I think you got to revel in it a little bit. Unless you're the 90s Braves. Unless you're the 90s Braves. You know what? Fuck the 90s Braves. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I can get behind that as well. <laughs> uh, this episode 141 of Amazing Avenue Audio. Yeah, we're just gonna we're gonna revel in it. There's no agenda. We have a few emails to answer later, um, but I just wanna. So last week on the show, I was very clear. There's no nothing to be worried about here. You know, this team is good. The Nationals are not good, as we have seen. The Nationals have some problems right now, <laughs> on a number of levels, baseball and otherwise. You know, this was not going to be a 2007. This was not going to be a 2008, and it wasn't. But if I if I can be honest with you for a moment, Steve and listeners, for the past two weeks, about every other night, I was dreaming the Mets blew it somehow. I would wake up from a dream <laughs> where the Mets had somehow blown the NL East. Because that's just where your mind subconsciously, that's always going to be there until this happened. And what I said at Pitch Talks about sort of curing the Mets fan psyche was very much kind of like a physician heal thyself kind of situation mm. on one level. And I said it again last week about settling all family debts. Well, they're settled now. And look, you know, this team might go into a series with the Dodgers and just get swept off the map. You know, Kershaw and Greinke might throw two, you know, complete game shutouts. And then some weird shit will happen with Brett Anderson or something. I don't know. This could happen. But I want to be, I want to preface our discussion with this. No matter what happens from here on out, this season was a success. Absolutely. This season was great. It was enjoyable, mostly, from start to finish. (laughs) May and June, well, you know, you got to sort of level set to remind yourself what the bad times feel like. You know, whether it's Eric Campbell playing left field for 14 innings or John Mayberry batting cleanup against Clayton Kershaw or any of the other fun things that happened. On paper, one of those two things makes sense. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) We're really going to spend this... uh, Revelatory podcast defending John Mayberry Jr. Is that how we want to spend our time, Steve? No, I'm sorry. But I think we have another swig of this. The world has changed. We have all these extra playoff rounds now, so it does feel like you know if they go if they go one and done, it's like oh well, there are still other teams playing, so this wasn't really a successful season. This was a successful season. This was a fun team to watch. Honestly, if they just ended the year at 500, I would have said that's a, 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 an extremely successful season. I mean, this is just icing on the cake. I don't know if I'd go that far. <laughs> All right, well, I'm, I'm just saying, again, I was very pessimistic coming to the season. You were, yeah, so that would have been, any, a, couple, that would have been a couple of games ahead of your uh, season uh, prediction. Right, but I mean, anything, you know, a couple of games over 500 would have been like, wow, it's pretty good that that we actually made the playoffs with a little bit of time to spare. Mm. We could set a rotation mm. up. We could set, you know, give guys some rest. We're not like rushing into the playoffs. You know, we, we have the luxury of time. <laughs> you know, that's how we sort of, I think, said over and over again. Actually, I think it was Gary. You know, the marathon is over. Now it's time for the sprint. And in a five-game series, anything can happen. Look, the Mets could win the fucking World Series. In which case, I will be doing this again just drunker. <laughs> what Podcast live at the Tick to Tape Parade. Yeah. <clears throat> but I don't think we want to lose sight of just how cool this season was and this team was. And we'll get into the playoff preview stuff you know, a little bit this week and certainly next week. But just sort of reflecting now... Um, what was your favorite, some of your favorite moments from this season to date? 
Um, the debuts of Syndergaard and Matt, as you know, as guys that have been following their careers in the minor leagues for a couple of years now, you know, it's it's special. It's a nice feeling to be like, wow, this guy finally made it. Um, David Wright's return and you know his home run in his first at bat against Philadelphia. Wilmer Flores' walk-off in that game, that 12-inning game, which I was actually at, and then I had to leave early because I had work the next morning. It's false hustle. I know, man. Lacking vision. There's a bunch of, like you said earlier, it was just a fun season. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of good, happy, fun moments with this team. I think I said it before on the podcast, but sort of the moment where I really bought in just sort of wholesale that this was actually possibly going to happen was that they was the sunday night game against washington at city going for the sweep mm. and i talked a little bit about it with with joe sheehan when he was on because he was there too and we really didn't get into as much as i as i would have liked just the atmosphere at the ballpark was and i never Maybe I just didn't go to the right games at Shea down the stretch and got sort of the full playoff atmosphere, but it was the most sort of uplifting experience for me as a Mets fan. I think there's really something to sort of like, you know... um, the idea of, of baseball as, or can be a religious experience. Right. Well, I'm not a particularly religious person myself. There's just sort of the communal nature of that game and that and those moments. Absolutely. I mean, picture, you know, 40,000 people all at once, you know, just releasing emotion, positive or negative. Yeah, and it was just, it was... It wasn't so much that we were like willing the team on or anything like that. It was just sort of the collective, like a switch flipped. Granderson home run, like, oh. And then the next pitch, Murphy, it's like, oh, this is happening now. (laughs) And of course, this is all like post hoc hindsight stuff. They could have easily scuffled to a finish and it would have just been remembered as a nice moment, but one that was ultimately fleeting. So I'm just sort of sitting here attaching value to it because of what's happened afterwards you know we look for those turning points whether it's the the flores walk off or the trade that didn't happen but you know a million bizarre things have happened this season whether it's drew Storen completely losing it against the mets and the nationals underperforming which is certainly a a a big part of this and we can look at the actual reasons that all of this happened but in the end the sort of the like a collective psychosis was lifted from Mets fans in that moment. <laughs> At least I thought. I mean, people were still talking about a collapse like a week and a half ago. Yeah. So <laughs> then you check. They, 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 yes, they had they had a four and six run for ten games, and all of a sudden, you know, Panic City's back. But it's like you know, I I can't. Like I said, I've been waking up from nightmares. I don't call them nightmares per se. The last couple of weeks about this team blowing the division. <laughs> Before the Wednesday Newcastle League Cup game, I had a random dream that I was in line at Trader Joe's, like, checking the score of the Newcastle Wednesday game on my phone, and they were down 3 nothing in the 19th minute. That's the way my brain works. <laughs> I can't help it. To be honest, I think anyone who, who has said, oh, no, I didn't doubt anything, I think they're lying. I mean, sure. I mean, you always there's always going to be mind. that voice in the back of your head. You know, we're, we're Mets fans. Anyone who lived through, you know, 2007, 2008, they just changed, you know? <laughs> It is. I think uh, you know Matt Callen, who I'm really glad is writing for the site again, touched on a lot of these issues in his piece that went up this morning, which you should all read if you haven't already. It's just like, this doesn't mean anything. Like, it's nothing. My life is not vastly improved by being a, a baseball fan. I don't, I talked about this on the show, I don't think it necessarily makes me a better person. You know, it's put me in contact with a lot of people that I like and wouldn't have met otherwise uh, on the internet and elsewhere. But, you know, there are real 
real shit going on in, in my life and certain certainly in other people's lives that you know, make the relative success and failures of the New York Metropolitan Club baseball team seem insignificant. But it's just, there's something about sports, man. And there's something about baseball specifically. I think you really sort of touched on the idea that it's just there every day. So you really get sort of attached to teams and players and announcers in a way you just don't in other sports. It's true. I mean, football is a fun sport. You know, I watch football during football season most most Sundays, maybe not all Sundays, whatever, but it's only once a week, you know, and then you have bye week, so not even once a week. Baseball's there for you every day for a good six months, you know. Nothing's on TV, baseball's on. You're not doing anything, you could go to the game. It's always there for you, you know. No, I agree with that, and I don't know if it quite sort of attains the level of community that I get from from soccer fans it's funny i was at football factory this weekend for the wednesday brentford game as i said and there happened to be a couple of brentford fans there on holiday and they were chatty and we got to talking and i'm always kind of an oddity because you know i'm an american fan of a second division soccer english soccer team Um, you know it's not even particularly like a good hipster choice always something like leicester (laughs) city or crystal palace or i think are the popular hipster american soccer i mean it was always arsenal liverpool but you want to go really deep like uh, Liverpool, I think, and uh, Crystal Palace and Leicester, I think, are the, are the current trendy choices. Everton was a couple of years ago when Roberto Martinez first came in. With a name like Crystal Palace, though, how can you not root for them? They also have a nightclub in the stadium called Crystals. I'm a fan. So I was talking <laughs> to the uh, to one of the Brentford fans, and he was asking, you know, if uh, soccer was like my main sport, and I said, no, no, I like, you know, I, I am a diehard Mets fan. I, you know, I write about baseball. I have two f- different freelance writing gigs about baseball now. So, and I, and I, like, th- I paused for a second. And I'm like, you know, I, I do get something out of soccer now that I don't get out of baseball where I can just be an unabashed fan in a way. I don't think I can be with the Mets anymore. Right. And that's for, that's for good and for ill. I think there's, I mean, you you don't want to be that guy. We all know who that guy is. <laughs> you know, the sort of the stereotypical, you know, bridge and tunnel mook that uh, goes to games and yells at Noah Syndergaard when he uh, makes a couple of bad pitches against the Yankees, calls him a bum, which actually happened behind me when I was at that game uh, with Greg, you know, a week plus ago. You don't want to be that guy. But there is something to be like just being able to completely I think this sort of ties back in with sort of the sort of the religiosity that the sport can give you. Is that you completely sort of hand yourself over to something completely out of your control. No like no matter what I said on this podcast, no matter what I did, no matter what socks I wore, you know, what hat I wore to the game, I have no impact on how the team does. But I live and die with that team every day. You know, there are days if they lose the night before, I don't even look at MLB.com. Like, I don't want to look at the highlights. And if they win, I'm watching <laughs> the highlights at work all day when I should be doing work. I must have watched the clip of, uh, you know, what the most recent one was that I watched over and over again at work. Um, probably the Suspedis home runoff Storin. Like, I watched the regular clip, I watched the must-see clip, I watched the stat cast clip. It was all glorious. Over and over and over again. After they clinched, I spent, like, the next day just going through the entire season, clicking on games I remember, and just looking at the highlights (laughs) of the good stuff. You know, good or bad, like you said, it's, it's there every day. This was a good season. There can be no doubt, no matter what happens from here on out. Very poetic. I didn't intend that. I don't think it quite fit. It wasn't really iambic pentameter or anything, but there was some unintentional attempt at meter there, I think. 
So we should get into some of the actual news-worthy stuff that's happened recently. That doesn't involve the Mets spraying champagne all over each other. Juan Uribe uh, re-injured his chest on a check swing against Cincinnati. Might be out for the first round of the playoffs. So who would you task with uh, taking his roster spot as of right now? Uh, it really depends. I know there's been a lot of talk about, you know, Lagares and Eric Young Jr., you know, picking one of them as opposed to having both. That's Adam Rubin, who I don't think is particularly accurate when it comes to actually making analyzing team decisions. All right, well, then ignore me. <laughs> um, I mean, it could be Herrera. You know, he's he's another middle infield guy. He's, uh, you know, has a little bit of pop. We could see what he's going to be, you know, see what he can do. Throw him into the fire, see what happens. I think, so, so again, if we're, we're making some a series of assumptions here, but if we assume they go 14-11 with hitters and pitchers, we assume we'll just call Flores the start the starting shortstop for the purposes of this exercise, <laughs> but I think he makes a team either way. Um, you have a bench of Tejada, Kelly Johnson, Kadire again, with the primary outfield alignment being Suspedes in center, Conforto in left, Granderson in right, at least against right-handed pitching. Um, backup catcher probably Kevin Ploiecki. Mm-hmm. I think Juan Lagares has to be on it. You need a true center fielder. I mean, I think it's. I, I thought it was odd to begin with that there was even talk that he might not even make the roster. You know, yeah. his his bat, you know, hasn't come along as you might. I mean, he have can he can hit he can hit lefties. He can run a little bit, and he can be a center field caddy. Right. I mean, at at the very least, you know, a defensive replacement. And yeah, that guy has in, multiple useful roles on a playoff team. Right. Exactly. In the playoffs, he's a guy that you know you you really want because Eric Young you Jr. Know, has one thing he can do well and he can't necessarily even do it that much better than Dilson Herrera right. or Juan Ligaris. Um so your rebase spot is really either I think you need another infielder at that point I mean yeah Kelly Johnson can play possibly all four infield positions did he have a ball hit at him when he was playing shortstop hopefully not I don't know though. <laughs> I don't remember either um, I think having Herrera look would be interesting. I mean, he's your 25th man. At this point, he's, what, half a grade slower than Eric Young Jr.? He's a plus runner. He can really only play second base, which is a bit of a problem. Um, but he can play it better than Eric Young Jr., who they, they might talk themselves into a potential second base emergency guy. <laughs> Not that they really need one again with a, you know, Kelly Johnson and Tejada on the bench. I guess there's something about Herrera. There always has been for me, where I think just give him a uh, give him a shot. He might surprise you. Yeah, I mean, he's one of our top prospects, and you know, there's a very good possibility that Murph is not a New York Met next season. And if that's the case, then there's a very good chance that Herrera might be our starting second baseman, or at least on the 20 man, 25 man roster on you know the 2016 Mets. So give him some at bats. I think you will get a few at-bats down the stretch. He looked pretty good against, uh, well, to be fair, at, at best, a triple-A pitcher on Sunday. The other quote-unquote open spot is the uh, Game 4 starter, which the Mets have not officially announced. Bartolo Colon will start tomorrow night as we record this on Monday, which makes me happy because I'm having Liz Rocher over for drinks and to watch the game, and it's always better with Bartolo. <laughs> But Steven Matz or Bartolo Colon, who do you want starting game four? Matz. That seems reasonable. Yeah. Well, I mean, you look at it this way. Um, any scenario where there's a game four, one team is up 2-1 or one team... The Mets are up 2-1 and they're down 2-1. There's your math. So it's either an elimination game or you're going for the win. And I get either that... Way. I get that Cologne is the more experienced of the two. I get that. Um, and look, I own a Bartolo Cologne jersey. <laughs> I have multiple 
Well, I even want to go multiple. I have eight more photos of Bartolo Colon on my phone than anyone excepting probably Bartolo Colon's family. <laughs> and possibly Bartolo Colon himself. Bartolo he does take a lot of those plane selfies. So. Yeah, that's true. Bartolo Colon is bay. We know this. Uh, and look, he hasn't been that bad in the second half. He's pitched to a, a 376 ERA, 3.76 ERA in 83 innings. You know, a 5 to 1 strikeout to walk ratio. He has been, I would guess, if you crunch the numbers on that, something close to a league average starter in the second Sounds half. Sounds about right. Give or take. So the problem with Bartolo Colon, and we know this, is he has absolutely beaten up on the bad teams in the league. So against teams with a winning percentage over 500, he's 1-5 in five with a 5 ERA. Hmm. And seems under 500, he's 13 and 7 with a 3.88 ERA. Is that significant? I don't know. Mm, it it's feel, a better run. It feels like there's something to it, though. I mean, you know what? I, let's, let's even go a step further. Against the Braves, he's 4 and 0 with a 3.66 ERA. Against the Marlins, he's 4 and 2 with a 2.49 ERA. Against the Phillies, he's 4-0 with a 2.33 ERA. You can probably imagine what it looks like for everybody else. (laughs) So it's not even that he's uh, good against... He's better against teams under 500 teams. Because you'd expect pitchers as a class to be better against worse teams. It's that he has really made his hay against the absolute dregs of the National League. What does he do against a good lineup? It's one game. I don't know. And he's a crafty veteran. What I do know, Stephen Mass is a motherfucker. Exactly. And I just... And look, you can probably... You should do this either way in an elimination game, or even if they're up 2-1. I am more confident Terry will pull Matt's after 4 if he gets in trouble, after 3 if he gets in trouble then the same with Cologne. He'll keep, because Cologne's the veteran, he'll, he'll be a little more willing to just try to get one more inning out of him, try to get one more inning out of him. Right. And also, I mean, Cologne is in the bullpen, you know, hands on deck, just in case, you know, either complete, you know, win or elimination, whatever the situation is. I would be more comfortable with Cologne coming in to relieve Matt's then Matt's coming to relieve Cologne early on, just because Cologne has that, you know, he, he just has that calm, unflappable demeanor. I would be a little bit more worried about Matt's being amped up, you know, coming into a game, pressures on him, you know, overthrowing or not being able to locate or whatever it is, whereas Cologne is probably just does not give any fucks, and he'll just be himself. By the same for good t- or for bad. By the same token, though, I think, one thing we've seen in Matt's, and this is a, a, a very short sample, obviously, is that he seems to be able to battle through without his best stuff, without his best command. When Cologne doesn't have it, right, it's 7-2 well. to two in the third. <laughs> so that's the risk you run. I think at the end of the day, um, Matt's gets a start. With yeah, a very I mean, short ultimately... Leash. Ultimately, Matt's is the better pitcher at this point. I think they're just more confident that Cologne can transition to the bullpen when they want to see it with Nice first. And they want to give Nice some reps there. Because he really has no experience doing that. Which is why they moved him to the pen uh, immediately and they're going to give Cologne one more start. And really, the (laughs) problem is they moved both of them to the pen immediately. They need to find another pitcher. You know, whether it's calling 
Gabriel Yanoa up from the Dominican, which I would have been fine with. <laughs> or uh, yeah, he's like starting uh, Johnny Holstaff with like Tim Stauffer. You know, as your starter. And it doesn't matter, because they've already won the hey. division. Who gives a shit? But Staffers earned it, man. But I have no, no, no real problem with them. Sort of hedging their bets a little bit there. You hey, know, think of it. They still have to play the last six games of the season. Think of it like this. The worse we do in the next six games, the better draft position we get next I, year. I was looking. They could, be the, they could have this, end up with the second best record in baseball. <laughs> They could pass there. I think they're a game and a half behind the Royals and Blue Jays right now. Who would have seen that coming? Hmm. Now move on to your emails. Before we do emails, we do housekeeping. It's the Mason Avenue Audio, episode 141. Mason Avenue Audio is the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Mason Avenue. You can find us on the internet at AmazonAvenue.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AmazonAvenue. And join our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash AmazonAvenue. You can find the podcast on iTunes. Just search for Amazing Avenue Audio and you listen or subscribe right there. I encourage you to do both. I also encourage you to rate and review the podcast. You can find the podcast on the Stitcher app. Download directly from blogtalkradio.com slash Amazing Avenue, or listen to the embedded player that goes up in the podcast post at Amazing Avenue proper. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro. You can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. My co-host this week is Steve Sippa. You can follow him on Twitter at Steve Sippa. That was the housekeeping. These are your emails. You can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. Our first email is from Jesse. Seems pretty obvious. He wrote this right before uh, Harvey started against the Reds. Assuming Harvey goes five in today's match against the Reds, that his plan to go five is designed to max out his ARB money by giving him a shot at a win. On a related note, I think we should set up a Harvey-Matt's piggyback game in the playoff if Harvey won't go more than five. Apparently, Harvey wants the ball now. He's going to take it and go. He went six plus, 100 pitches. I have no idea what to make of this. <laughs> I have given up trying to figure this out. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I'll talk to people with various degrees of, you know, connectivity to the situation. And it's just like, it's like a Twitter shrug. It's a Twitter shrug. Well, it's like, nobody knows what's going on. I don't even know what game he's going to start. But he's looked pretty good his last two starts. Yeah, at, at least he's going to be starting a game. So let's... And look, if he starts game three with every state's... You know, if they lose game one and he goes game two against Granky and outduels him, no one's going to give a shit what he said to the press in September. Yeah. That is the beauty <laughs> of this sport. It's a results-based endeavor. As long as you are, you know hustling out pop-ups in front of your psychopathic reliever. <laughs> if you're not, then your results don't matter. I feel bad for you if you're not. Bad times. Our next email is from one of our many Michaels. Who prefers to go by Mike. Hey Jeff and whoever is, I'm guessing Greg, maybe it is not. I know nope. you don't like answering many wrestling questions. I mean, I do. <laughs> Our listeners do not. <laughs> but I have one. If you had to assemble a group of Mets to have as a Dragon Gate stable, would you choose? This is this is really going to annoy everyone. I mean, this is even <laughs> like a level beyond the usual wrestling questions. What wacky stable name? What colors? This inquiring mind wants to know. But just in case you don't want to answer it, can we please have another fun Jordani Valdesfin <laughs> story? Forgot to ask that when I was at Pitch Talks two weeks ago. I'm currently writing this with the Mets magic number at one. But I'm assuming the Mets have clinched the division at this point. When you're reading this as a celebratory episode, or might we, we might be knee-deep in Panic City. I am knee-deep in a bourbon old-fashioned. Mm. So it is celebratory. Though it could be every podcast, I'm usually knee-deep in a bourbon old-fashioned, so... 
thanks for all your hard work, and I hope I have the testicular fortitude to get up and ask you a question next time there is a pitch talks. Look, we didn't make fun of the little kid in the Expo shirt that asked us about the Mets' confidence uh, coming into the Yankee series. So you, you should have. He was actually a lovely little child. I gave him my business card. <laughs> you want to know how to break into the business? If I have any good advice there, other than write a lot of things about Josh Satin. That's very true. It is. That's how I made it. So Dragon Gate Stable. I suppose I'm going to have to preface this to a certain amount, provide at least a bare level of context while spending maybe under three minutes on this answer. (laughs) So we don't lose the entire audience. Unfortunately, I'm noticing that Jay is redoing the website now, so I don't have um, the roster page conveniently open. But just for... Um, context. Here are some names of recent and current Dragon Gate stables. Monster Express, The Jimmies, The Millennials, Doofixer, um, Mad Blanky. Mm. Mm, yes. Crazy Max, M2K. What else am I forgetting? Agan Isao. I don't remember what that actually meant at the time. But, uh, so yeah. They do kind of like, it's a, it's a, it's a Lucha Libre influence style of wrestling. So it's very sort of colorful, a lot of big high flying moves. So you need some big high flyers or small high flyers, as the case may be. So I think I'm going to go with sort of the classic. I think we've answered wrestling stable questions before. On the show about the uh, about the Mets, but I think you need like a big, you need like your cocky, your main. I always go with the heel stables; so they're more interesting. You need like your cock, you need your cocky heel, your talker. Um, and for that, I'm gonna go with Ioannis Suspetis. I think he's gonna be the sort of the the ace of the stable. He's got the canary yellow sleeve, canary yellow sleeve, the necklace. He has that sort of like punk cockiness to him to a certain extent in a good way he's like the heel you love to cheer you need like a power fighter he's a power fighter to back him up a heavyweight go with anthony wrecker it's gonna wreck shit yes you don't have to talk just to stand behind Jonas Suspedis and look intimidating They need your high flyer. For that, I think I'm going to go with uh, go with Dilson Herrera. Small, compact, still pretty strong, though. Looks good. We already know he looks good in a pair of underoos, so he probably looks pretty good in wrestling tights. <laughs> the thing about that, that that amused me the most is you could tell the guys that were totally willing to stand in front of all the photos and why they were willing to stand in front of all the photos. <laughs> Dilson Herrera was one of those guys. Like, no, I'll stand directly in front of these pictures that are going to go off on the internet. Because I look fucking good in a pair of, like, the Flash underoos. Also, it's like the Flash. That's good. So it's like your high flyer fast guy. And then you need kind of like your old cagey, you know, maybe a manager, maybe a part-time wrestler. Sort of general shit stirrer. It's got to be Bartolo. Oh, of course. Bartolo definitely. He doesn't say anything. He's just there being Bartolo. That's all he needs to be. I don't know what the name for this Dragon Gate stable is going to be, though. I live right next to a high school now, so it must be a football game or something. I can literally hear the PA system from my apartment. Yeah. That's better than me. I live across the street from a middle school, so I get all the uh, 11 to 13-year-old brats. 
Fun times. <laughs> and the school buses. So I guess I can... Uh, one more Jordani Valdespin story for the road. <laughs> we told several of these after... Um, I don't remember how it came up at Pitch Talks, but we were definitely swapping Valdespin stories afterwards. Among other things that will never, ever get repeated or printed anywhere. But, uh, so there was... He had a day off, and he was supposed to be warming up the, uh, right field or the left field, or whatever side of the field they were on. I don't remember the exact details of the story. So he would literally, like... He started warming up the guy the first couple innings. Then it's time he'd be, like, chatting with some girls in the stands. And then slowly but surely we'd have the ball boy. He'd like throw the first ball out, then like call the ball boy over to warm him up. <laughs> <laughs> well, he chatted with the girls in the stand, and not the first time I've ever seen that happen. And then he like he's like <laughs> he might have even been suspended, unofficially suspended at the time when he was told to do this. And he was still hitting on women, which granted is a pastime for various minor leaguers at all levels and in all situations. Just part of baseball culture. It is. I think he might have been. I think the the, the crux of the story was he actually suspended at the time for something else. <laughs> had a day off for disciplinary reasons. They're making him warm up the uh, corner outfielder. He couldn't even bother to do that. Hey, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. Jordani Valdespin was very good at that, if nothing else. <laughs> Our next email is from Tom. Gents, what are your thoughts on trying to lock up Conforto to a long deal this offseason? What would it cost to pay him through ARB? Maybe buy out one or two free agent years? I recognize there are several potential issues. Notably, the mill ponds may not read, almost certainly don't have the money, <laughs> and Boris may not be in that into giving up a couple of Conforto's late 20s early 30s years. Um, he and Sandy are in great terms right now, so I'm sure he'd be amenable to a deal. But if you're Conforto and they throw $100 million guaranteed or, or whatever at you, don't you have to take it? Given the relative crappiness of the free agent market recently, locking up talented young guys seems like it's generally a better use of resources if you want to deal them in 2019 or whenever they're out of this window of contention that can make them a more valuable asset. Also, I haven't heard you mention bringing back Cologne after this year. Bay on a one-year deal for five to eight million might be good insurance given the lack of starting pitching depth. No. Um, so the Conforto extension. If you look at the guys that get have been getting sort of early market extensions recently, um, well, actually, I'll, I'll I'll frame it this way before I get into that. You have to buy into your evaluation of Conforto whatever that is, before you do this. But you're going to be committing a large amount of money now. There's no more Evan Longoria, Matt Moore deals out there, really. You know, even Kyle Seeger, who I think at the time had more years under his belt than Conforto got something like $70 million. You know, Buster Posey got $100 million. You know, basically a year plus into his career. And I guess he had the service time from the missed time too, but you know, roughly speaking. Scott Boris is not taking an Evan Longoria deal. No. You might get a, a pre-arb extension here, but you're going to be paying much closer to market rates than you were a couple of years ago. And look, if you think Michael Conforto is a, you know, going to make a few all-star games, you'll be a perennial, what is he, like, for two wins in 40 games, roughly? You know, if you think you'll regress that because he's going to face some lefties. If you think he's a perennial four to five win player, you know, borderline, better than an above average regular, borderline all-star make some all-star games it's going to be really hard to offer him a deal at this point that you don't win in the end he's only 22 you offer him a seven-year deal an eight-year deal 
maybe an option on the end, you know, seven-year deal with an option on the end of it. He still hits free agency again at 30. But you're going to be paying pretty close to market rate. I'm not saying that's a bad use of their money, but you got to look at who you're dealing with. Now, can he turn down? Let me see. Let's say... They called him up post Super Two, so let's say one one one. Six ten. The problem is how do you structure this deal? Because you're buying out pre RB so you buy him at a million dollars, like Mike Trout. <laughs> it's just very hard to offer enough money to. You know, make Boris give up that. You know, he'll be a free agent at 29 now, 28, after his age 28 season. Yep. Those guys get paid. That's like Justin Upton territory. And, and look, I can't believe I'm saying this. He might be better than Justin Upton. <laughs> it's possible. It's in play, but you don't know now. You're going on very little information. And it's left field only. I like the arm, but it's left field only. He's got to hit a ton. I think he will. It's probably too early to make that call. Mm-hmm. Let's see what we have here. Let's see him in a full season playing 150 games against lefties and righties. I think he'll hit. I think he's a very good player. I don't think he's appreciably more expensive after next season than he is right now, just because of how little service time he has. Also, I don't think Scott Boris makes that deal. Nah, if nothing, if if no other reason than to just stick it to the Mets because of it's not the a recent... great, it's not a great relationship even before yeah. the Harvey thing, but. Look, generally speaking, this organization has not been shy about dealing with Boris' clients. So, we'll see where we go from here. Um, I would, it, that's, we actually, I was discussing this with Toby, I think, after our Pitch Talks panel. It, it actually kind of does make sense to bring Cologne back next year, and not just because we're both Cologne partisans. I mean, you know what you're going to get. He's been better than John Neese this year. And it sure looks like John Neese is going to be in the starting rotation next year, barring any other moves. I would not be uh, against that. I don't know if Cologne would. He can keep doing what he's doing. If nothing else, he's earned another, you know, two-year contract somewhere for a similar. I think of that's money. the problem. Is he'll get, he might get one more two-year deal. Yeah, <laughs> like or one year with an option. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Well, if he doesn't want to come back, there's always this uh, knuckleballer in Toronto. Yeah, well, I think they're going to pick up his option. Probably. No reason not to. He's had a pretty decent year this season. Could use the veteran experience on their club for next year. Our final email is from David and is addressed to Greg, who is not here this week. <laughs> so as I told Greg, he's like, he, had, he had all these California weddings on like Sundays. Goddamn Greg. So this is addressed to Greg. I'm actually going to have you read it while I fix myself another drink. <laughs> All right. Go for it. It's going to take you a while, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, this is from uh, David Pavia. So here we go. Dear Greg, because you are the only one to truly respond to my editorial from last week. I just want to say that your opinion on what was deemed as Wilpon apologism would have been fine and accurate if we lived in the bubble of post-Sandy Hire era Mets. 
The fact is that the Wilpons have been managing owners of the franchise for 25 years or so. And in order to evaluate the narrative of their ownership up to these 2015 Mets, we must take into account, we must take all of these years into account. Just to be clear, I'm not defending the tenure of their ownership. As a matter of fact, taken as a whole, there's no other way to look at the post-Doubleday Mets as under anything other than a gigantic failure. What makes the 29, excuse me, 2009 to 2015 version of the Wilpons that much more deserving of credit? Previous to their hiring of Alderson, assuming the, to be a Bud Selig idea, the Wilpons pretty much fucked up in every way a billionaire ownership group can fuck up in an otherwise paradoxic, wonderful tragedy that is the New York Mets. Despite youngish, I'm 41, Mets intelligentsia, basically Jeff and Evan Roberts, appreciation and admiration for the 1998-1999 and 2006-2008 Mets teams, those of us that really remember the last great Mets teams, 1984-1988, know that one of the Mets teams post-1988 ever really had any more than a puncher's chance at a World Series ring. Whether it was the fragile psyche of Armando Benitez blowing any number two... Excuse me. Any number of two-run leads in ten seconds, or the weight of an unrealistic expectation on Carlos Beltran's shoulders placed on him after oh signing. My God, you're big, only halfway through this email. Yeah, <laughs> big signing of big market free agent contract. The post '88 pre 2009 Mets never really had any more than a puncher's chance. Because of the massive pressures that come from being a New York baseball team, That's a, a puncher's chance anyway. has never and will never. <laughs> will never likely be actually lead to a World Series ring. This is probably as it should be. The reality is that the 1984 to 1988 teams were among, if not the best teams in baseball in their respective years. Sorry, folks, but these 2015 Mets are not yet one of the best teams in baseball. It takes that kind of domination to make it in New York in the New York media slash fan maelstrom. So you have to be so talented as not to cave into the immense pressure, and even with Yankees' money, one can simply not buy that kind of talent. It has to be developed over time through the minor leagues, especially in the salary cap era. Jeter's Yankees were built on the core four. We all know this. Add whatever you want to that mix of organizational talent, and you'd have to come up with at least one or two rings. Those 1984 to 1988 teams were built on Gooden, Darling, Strawberry, El Cid, Dykstra. Sure, adding Hernandez, Carter, Knight, and the others made a good core great. But the good core is being <laughs> built <clears throat> just like our current core. If it wasn't for the fact that cocaine is one hell of a drug, we would have at least one more ring. My point is, and I thank you for giving me a forum to make it, that the Wilpons probably learned something from all those close but no cigar Mets teams. John Main, Benny Agbayani, the aged John Franco, Rick Reed, Ali Perez, take a pick from a long list of mediocrity. Just isn't good enough in New York. This bunch, the young five stars, including Wheeler, plus Darno, Conforto, eventually Rosario, Dom Smith, Nemo, these are the core players of the next five to seven Mets seasons. Sprinkling declining but still solid veteran seasons like Wright, Granderson, and Kandaya for leadership and in clutch hitter two. Add a big splash, free market agent, hopefully a signed Cespedes, and we have a 95% chance of being among the top three to four teams in baseball in the next four to six years. This is not debatable. This is inevitable. Sure, it took a bunch of years to get here, but many of us have seen this coming and know where this is going. The guys that deserve credit are Fred Wilpon and Sandy Olsen. Elder Alderson. Deal with it. Admit it, goddammit. Yours truly, self-righteous Dave. I will not have anybody disparaging Rick Reed on this podcast. <sighs> I just think well, if we should take anything. We've learned that this is nothing is inevitable. Now, after 2006, we thought the team would be good for years, and it wasn't. Mm. I mean, look Let's... at that 2016 with Wright, Reyes, and Beltran. Listen, don't rain on Dave's parade right now. I mean, <laughs> it certainly helps that the NL East is a gigantic dumpster fire and their biggest competition is running their best player out of town, probably. To protect a manager that doesn't know that someone was getting choked out at the end of his dugout in the middle of a game. <laughs> eh, it happens. Apparently. That's what I've been told. It's just part of baseball culture. But what I know, I'm just another fucking millennial. Goddamn millennials. 
look, it's you never know. You just don't enjoy the ride. And look, I think Alderson's going to probably win Executive of the Year if Anthopolis doesn't. Did he get lucky to a certain extent? Whether it was, you know, Carlos Gomez's hip or... Ioannis Espedes, you know, channeling Manny Ramirez for 30 games. This stuff happens. I think you're trying to... create it's just it's fucking chaos you're trying to find meaning in the chaos which is fine and look i it, what can i say I, have i been maybe a little bit harder on sandy alderson the average like saber inclined mets blogger yeah probably but it shouldn't take six years to rebuild a, a ball club in new york and the money was an issue I don't think you can just hand wave that now because they ran into a bizarrely good season. I'm not saying don't enjoy it for what it is. I'm not saying they can't be good next year if they do sign Suspettis. That's a damn good lineup. You know, Wright and Darno stay you know play 120 games next year. That's a really good lineup. That team can win the East with those arms and those bats. It is a very solid offense, and the pitching is, of course pretty good but it's not as good as on paper as the Nats were this year you just don't know also I should probably have a snide remark here about me and Evan Roberts being the under 40 Mets intelligentsia but Mm. Evan was actually like a really early Twitter follower of mine so I can't really uh, I can't really snark here Greg needs to get here ASAP and yeah, address this. He's actually he's landing in uh, New York in an hour and a half. He's got time then. I should just call him up and like, <laughs> hey, Greg, you need to answer this question. He's had time. I did say I remember when we first uh, threw the email address out there. I was like, I will take your emails. I'm like. Yeah, send in your Mets questions or send in whatever. I don't care. We were, you know, we're just starting out. I didn't know any better. I did say, like, I, I probably won't read your manifesto on the air. But I feel like over the years, I've read a fair amount of manifestos. <laughs> this one, I mean, you read, obviously, because I need another drink. But... I mean, look... This is a good team. We didn't expect it to get that way. I don't know what will happen next year, and it doesn't really matter. Live in the moment. Do I have more faith in the front office and ownership to make the necessary moves to make this a sustainable winner over the next few years? Maybe. I still need to <laughs> see it. They didn't take any money on past this year. You know, in a team... If they're running out, you know, Wilmer Flores and Dilson Herrera and Juan Lagares up the middle next year with a year-older Grandison, a year-older Wright, you know, and the uncertainty of Travis Sarno, I mean, I don't know. We'll see. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it, I guess. We have plenty of podcasts about it this offseason with me grousing or praising or doing what is necessary, but... At least for the time being, I'm uh, I'm content and drinking my third cocktail. So that's the most important thing. This wasn't really a con- like I'm like I didn't know if I had time. I obviously did have time to make a full cocktail, another old fashioned. But I just kind of like poured more bourbon and bitters in here. Worked out okay. I figure there still is enough enough leftover sugar like on the bottom of the glass that hadn't dissolved yet to carry its weight. Those are your emails. Once again, you can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. And we'll wrap things up this week, Steve, with an IFK Gothenburg update. 
as, right, here we, as go. we do. So we're getting down into the nitty gritty. As you would say, Steve. No, as Centipede 101 would say. It's gut check time. There were two points up on the table. Actually, to be well, going into this week's midweek match day. We last did a podcast update. I believe I said they were actually a point behind both AIK and IFK. Nor Shoping on the table as it stands. They went to Elfsburg. Tough away match. In the 87th minute, Elfsburg went ahead 1-0. But a penalty in extra time got Gothenburg the equalizer. And they stayed level on points, top of the table on goal difference, going into their game against Sundsvall this afternoon. AIK had already lost, nor Shoping had already won. They needed a win to stay level on points ahead on goal difference. Despite blowing 1-0 and 2-1 leads, they got a goal in the last 10 minutes to win 3-2. And with four matches left on the schedule, they are still top of the league. It's going Very to be quite nice. quite the run-in. They still have to go to AIK in their second-to-last game. They have bottom-of-the-table Halmstad this Saturday before the international break. That might be Sunday. October 4th. I think that's Sunday. We're getting, we're getting, this is, it is, it's getting a little dicey. It's getting exciting. Mm. I have faith in the blue and white angels, though. They will pull this out. That was your IFK Gothenburg update. That's about it. It's a short one this week. Mostly because next week will be an <laughs> incredibly stressful week. An incredibly stressful week and an incredibly long playoff preview podcast. Um, we will already I've already booked return engagements from David Roth and Mike Farron. We'll have one of the New York Mets beat reporters on. Maybe some other surprises, probably my father, your emails utter chaos and confusion I may have to split it up into two parts to get under you know to keep it under 100 megabytes so you can download it on your whatever your network of choice is and not have to be on wireless I think that's the least I can do but we're in uncharted territory here yeah yep. it's gonna be crazy We'll definitely have a few more drinks. In more the than end. a few. More than a few. I can't. I might be covering the damn series. Like, that's the thing that might happen now. Like, I wasn't joking when I <laughs> when I said last week I can get a press credential. I might be covering it as a member of the press. I did not plan that. That spot. would be an experience. It would, and so I'm like, I'm in the, I'm in the, uh, as loath as I am at this point in my life to quote uh, the mildly sexist dialogue of Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> I feel like there is sort of a, a something to it. As I quote the West Wing, it's something I can find it quickly because I don't really have this. Uh... I can't quote this off the top of my head, unfortunately. Yes, yes, yes. So the whole thing is with Josh Lyman, the assistant uh, chief of staff, played by Bradley Whitford, getting like the car that tells him where to go in case of nuclear, like a nuclear event or something. <laughs> and he gets it and then he doesn't uh, none of his like sort of friends in the office gets it because they're not over a certain rank 
Like, and for all the times in between, I just want to be able to look them in the eye, Leo. It's not for me. I want to be my family, my friends, and these women. Like I said, it's mildly paternalistic. But, like, it's to be weird covering it as a member. Like, it's, I've got to be, like... And, like, I'm really good at once the credential goes on, sort of separating the... You know, I have a job to do. But it's just going to be weird. I mean, yeah, a run-of-the-mill game, whatever. There's 162 yeah. games. But a playoff game... That's that is difficult. But whatever happens, happens. We'll be here to talk about it, and in the near future, preview it on another edition of Amazing Avenue Audio. <laughs>